This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Welcome, everybody. It's great to be here.、Uh, I'm Henry Brady. I'm the dean of the Goldman School of Public Policy. It's wonderful to see a full house、uh, for this wonderful event tonight.、Uh, I want to introduce our two. Panelists, but actually, we're going to start with a short talk by Stan Druckenmiller, sort of outline the issues with respect to youth in America today, and then we're going to turn to a discussion with Jeffrey Canada, and then we'll have it open to your questions. Stanley Druckenmiller、uh, founded Duquesne Capital in 1981 and closed it, I think, around 2010. But during that time. Uh, did very well and had a storied career on Wall Street for his successes with his organization. He also, at one time, worked with George Soros and helped George Soros amass a substantial amount of wealth as well. So Stan Druckenmiller is a guy who knows a lot about finance, and part of what we're going to be talking about tonight is finance budgets and issues of the future. And in fact, part of what investing is about is thinking about the future, what's going to happen in the future. And so he's concerned deeply and profoundly about the future of young people in America, and you'll see when he talks exactly the degree to which he's concerned about the investments we're not making in young people, and how they're crowded out by other kinds of investments we do make. Jeffrey Canada、uh, is an educator,、uh, social activist, and the founder of the Harlem Children's Zone, which he started in 1990. The Harlem Children's Zone was designed to try to help children, young people in Harlem, to get to college, graduate, and get good jobs. It's an innovative, comprehensive, and intriguing approach. It seems to be successful, and I, I don't mean to be deprecating it by saying that. It's just that it takes a while to evaluate some of these programs, and. We do know that many people think this is a model for things we should be doing elsewhere, and in fact, our president thinks that, having put in the budget some、uh, proposals、uh, and some programs that are actually trying to replicate what's been done in the Har- Harlem Children's Zone. So the connection between the two of them is twofold:、uh, they both graduated from Bowdoin College, and the other connection is Mr. Druckenmiller over the years has helped raise the money. For the Harlem Children's Zone, and Jeffrey Canada has provided the zeal and the inspiration and the leadership to make it the success that it's become.、Uh, with that, I want to turn to Stan Druckenmiller, who's got a presentation to sort of outline the issues about the future of young people in America. Welcome. Jeff and I were at Bowdoin College together. In the early 70s, as children of the 60s, we、uh, we used to think about protests and changing the world. But even back then,、uh, I'd never been here. But Berkeley, California, was always the larger-than-life institution where movements started. And、uh, it's interesting. I hear a lot today about how. Millennials don't think the way children of the '60s thought, and they're not into movements and they're not into protests. 
But uh, I look at a couple of examples, and I couldn't disagree more. Um, when I think about how much this generation moved the needle on gay rights and what you've accomplished, I think it's ridiculous to suggest that this generation has not had been involved in political activism with results. I would say the same thing about this generation in terms of the environment and climate change. I look at the movement that's been made in Washington in the last 10, 10 years, and I think it's directly a result of this generation's um, activities and, and focus. I guess I'm somewhat puzzled by the fact, however, uh, that there's another thing that your generation has not focused on, and the reason I'm puzzled is, A, I think it's vitally, vitally important to your future, but also to the future of the country, and it, it affects you directly. Now, Dean Brady said, I'm gonna give a presentation. Actually, I think we're gonna have a conversation about this topic, and we just thought maybe I'd throw six or seven slides up here to get everybody uh, warmed up with regards to this topic. So, the line in red is federal payments to individuals or transfer payments. And what you see is back in the early 60s, that used to be 28% of all federal government outlays. It's currently 67%. So over the years, we've gone from an economy that used to have transfer payments of 28% of the federal budget to 67%. To put that in perspective, back in the early 60s, Medicare and Medicaid combined were 0.1% of GDP. Social Security was 2.6% of GDP. And discretionary spending was 11.5% of GDP. Today, Medicare and Medicaid are now 5.6% of GDP. Social Security is 4.9% of GDP. And discretionary expenditures have shrunk to 6.5% of GDP. Now, why is that important? Because transfer payments are really consumption and you don't get that much return on your investment. And I wanna highlight the blue line. Back in the 60s, investments as a percentage of the federal budget actually used to be higher than transfer payments. They were 32 and they've gone down to 15. Now for the Republicans in the audience, if there are any in Berkeley, California, um, I wanna remind you that government spending can be a lot more effective than, than what some of you have been putting out there in the press. What did you get for this blue line? You got the internet, you got GPS, you got the interstate highway system, and we got NIH grants that have moved the needle dramatically uh, on cancer and other diseases. What's been going on now for the better part of 50 years is the amount of money we are spending on transfer payments, primarily to seniors, has been crowding out investments in our future. And it's not just investments in things like G that brought us the internet and GPS, it's been at the expense of children. This chart is pretty remarkable. Um, what you're looking at is the per capita spending on children and on the elderly as a percentage of the average worker salary per capita. And what you'll see is in 2011, which is the last year I have good data on, 56 cents out of every dollar that an American worker made 
went toward expenditures on the elderly, pretty much the transfer payments I showed earlier, but only eight cents went on our children. So just as they've been crowding out other investments, the greater and greater allotment we've been making toward um, payments for things like Medicare, Medicaid for the elderly. We also have Medicaid for children, but as you can see, it doesn't move the needle much. And Social Security has been at the expense of money we might be spending on our younger generation. And what you see in red, back then, President Johnson declared a war on poverty. And since then, the poverty rate for seniors has dropped to 30% to 9%. I think we can all agree that's a wonderful accomplishment. There's nothing worse than thinking of an elderly person who's poor and can't make it in society and all that that encompasses. But the interesting thing is, during that same time period, the, the poverty rate for children has actually been an uptrend. It's actually pretty much flat to up, but believe it or not, we have made no progress in the last 40 years, even though the war on poverty has been declared a success. It's all been for the elderly, and in fact for children, that poverty rate hasn't dropped at all. It's pretty amazing. We now have a child poverty rate in this country of 24%. Think about that. Almost one in four of every child of America grows up under the poverty level. Just to show you how horrific that is, what we've done here is we've taken the 35 leading economic countries in the world, and here's the United States. We rank 34th with our 23% poverty rate for children. The only country we beat out is Romania. We're actually worse than Latvia and the other 33 countries. So here we are in the United States with all this wealth, with, with all the things we have, and we have the second highest child poverty rate. One in four children in America are growing up in poverty. I showed you on the first chart how much we've been spending on our seniors and on transfer payments relative to investment, and the second chart on relative to children. And look at what that 40 to 50 years of spending more and more and giving more pie the elderly has resulted in. This is a little complicated, but I think I can, I can deal with it here. So what you're looking at here is if you take the average net worth of age groups in 1983 versus their average net worth in 2010 in constant dollars. And for the first time in the history of America, we have a generation now that, that where their net worth in 2010 was actually less than their net worth in, in, in 1983. That's your 29 to 37 year old group. So a 29 year old in 2010 in constant dollars is worth less than a 29 year old was in 1983. But look at the elderly, with the most extreme case being 74, 74 and over. Not only is their, not, their net worth not less than it was in 1983, it's 150% more. And as you can see, for all the elderly, their net worth has gone up dramatically. Again, all a result of the first chart, as we continue to spend more and more on the elderly at the expense of the rest of our society. Now, so far, I've only talked about the size of the economic pie, and more of that pie, I'm sorry, the proportion of how the pie is split up. More and more of that pie has gone to the elderly. The problem going forward is 
There's about to be a lot more of the elderly and a lot less of the working force to support those elderly. So back in 1957, um, we had a birth rate in this country of 3.7 to 1. We had more babies born in 1957 with 100 million less people than we have today. It's pretty incredible when you think about it. We only had like 165 million people in the country, and in the last 15 years, we'd never had as many babies born in 1957. This, as you all know, was called the baby boom after we came back, soldiers came back from World War II, 1947 to 1967. They did their business with their wives. A lot of babies were created. We had a baby boom. (laughs) For those of you who can add... 1947 plus 65 equals 2012. So in 2012, that baby boom for the next 20 years becomes a gray boom. Let me put it in stark terms. For the next 16 years, it's been going on for four years, every day 11,000 people are going to turn seniors. We're creating 11,000 seniors every day for the next 16 years. We're only creating... 2,000 young adult workers a day to support those seniors. So what you have is, over the next 25 years, the people that that are actually working to support the retired elderly, they're going to grow by 17%. But the elderly, because of the gray boom, are going to grow 102%. It gets even a little hairier if you look inside the numbers. The over 85 contingent is going to grow by 322%. Why does that matter? Because as longer life goes on, the more we spend on our elderly in the healthcare system. The average 85 year old, we spend two times what we do on the average 66 year old. So the point is, we've been shifting more and more of the pie to the elderly. There are about to be a lot more of the elderly versus the rest of society to support them. And they're living a lot longer. And the longer they live, the more they spend each year. And this is going to cause us financial problems. Um, I used to put a chart up, but it's so horrifying, I just thought I'd talk about it rather than put the chart up itself. If you take what we've promised our seniors in terms of Social Security, Medicare projections, and Medicaid projections, what we promised them versus the tax revenues we've projected, um, you get a number which we call the fiscal gap. Now, the American government uses very interesting accounting. How many people here are 65 or over? Well, maybe you don't want to admit it. Okay. So, for those of you who are 65 and over, I would assume you think you're going to get your Social Security check next month. According to the federal government, that's probably not going to happen because in their accounting system, they don't account for the fact that anybody over 65 is going to get any payments going forward. That's not considered a liability on their balance sheet. There's not a corporation in America, well, maybe Enron, but they they went by the wayside, (laughs) who does their accounting that way. The way the government accounting works is the payments these seniors are going to get, they don't exist. And if they did exist, and you put it on the balance sheet, and you took the present value of that, of that gap, according to Larry Kotlikoff, economist from uh, University of Massachusetts, the present value of that gap 
would make our, our current debt, which is at $18 trillion by most accounts, it would make it $205 trillion. Look, I don't know whether this is science. There's a lot of projections out. All I know is 205 is a lot more than 18. And if it's $100 trillion, you see the problem. So let me just put, wrap this up in a nutshell for you. Um, if you look at what we've promised current seniors and you look at the size of the fiscal gap, there's not going to be any money left over for future seniors. That's the young people in the audience. People might think I'm against Medicare and I'm against Social Security. Actually, I love Social Security and I love Medicare. The problem is I love them so much, I think the younger people in this room should be able to get them in 40 or 50 years too. This is not young versus old. This is sort of smoothing out the generational transfer from current seniors to future seniors. So that's really what we're here to talk about. Um, I realize 30 or 40 years seems like a long way down the road, and this is not something we should be particularly worried about. But I take heart from your generation and their, their thoughts on climate change, because that's 30 or 40 years down the road. That's another ticking time bomb, and there seems to be an activism there. And I'm just hoping maybe I can get a movement started in the greatest movement starting place in the world, Berkeley, California. Thank you. We're going to have our conversation now. So uh, that was great, and I think that sets the stage. It also gives new meaning to the old uh, Vulcan phrase, live long and prosper. Um, and it looks like some people will and others may not. And that's the concern we have. But it's not even just the case that we're worried that young people eventually won't get Social Security and Medicare. We're also worried that as various government agencies, including the federal government, but also states and localities, which have large pension obligations, as they try to meet these various obligations for pensions, uh, for benefits, for Medicare, for Social Security, that that's going to elbow aside other kinds of investments that are necessary for the next generation to succeed. And Jeffrey Canada is the guy who's trying really hard to make sure we do invest in our children. So I want to start by talking a little bit about why that's so important. And first, what the problem is, what the underinvestments look like, and then what we should be doing about it. So, Jeffrey, tell us a little bit about what the problems are. Well, I, I think that uh, as I uh, think about this issue, uh, it's really clear to me that the numbers that Stan was talking about, uh, one in four children in America uh, growing up in poverty, uh, is a disaster. I mean, all of the research about what it means to actually be in poverty, the, uh, when it starts, which is literally at birth, uh, that you begin to see changes in these young children who've done absolutely nothing uh, but be born uh, in uh, the wrong zip code or to parents who, uh, often through no fault of their own, don't have enough support for them, uh, that we as a society, I think, uh, have... Uh, created uh, really an unsustainable uh, democracy. You can't continue this uh, and expect that we're going to uh, remain a democracy. And I, I think it's quite honestly a crisis. So I've spent my entire life 
trying to prove that a poor children, if they have serious investments in them, can end up entering the labor market and being successful. And, and that sounds like a funny thing to, to say, I've been trying to prove it, but a bunch of people simply did not believe that was true. That when they thought about poverty and they thought about the war on poverty, they said, well, there's nothing you can do about it, nothing works. Well, the truth of the matter is that there are things that work, uh, and proving that, I think, is really important. Uh, the, the one reason people should understand that, uh, after all of our work, and Stan and I have been partners in this uh, for a couple of decades, where we've actually now got you know, kids um, going through middle school, into high school, into college, graduating from college, uh, being very successful. The point of the whole effort was to make sure those young people uh, had a piece of the American dream. Uh, and I, you know, Stan and I grew up in the same time. I was a year ahead of him in school. But as a kid from the 60s, I've always believed in conspiracies. And that, that, that might shock those of you here in Berkeley. But, but here's, one of, here's where this whole thing got tied together for me for the first time. Uh, I was in graduate school, and someone began to talk to me about Social Security uh, and life expectancy, and that blacks were not, their life expectancy wasn't long enough for them to collect Social Security, right? And I said, of course, here's another, right, sort of rip-off, right? In the, and, and so as I became happy to see uh, black life expectancy increase, then I got Stan's charts, <laughs> right? And you look like, and they got us again, right? So, yeah, but, but, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you why you shouldn't, you shouldn't laugh about this. Uh, Stan... Uh, he, he makes his money from understanding things that most people ignore, which I respect. And he shares, he knows I, I love this to sort of know what's going on. And uh, quite a while ago, he showed me similar data about housing in the United States. Right? And he laid his data out and he pointed not just to the year, but to the month our economy was going to become undone. And I'm looking at this stuff saying, uh, America wouldn't let this happen. This would destroy the United States if this thing happened. And uh, we talked about it and decided we would go to Washington together and say to people who should care about this, you're about to destroy this country. Just destroy it completely. They did nothing. So I just watched the crisis unfold, which we're still living through today. And I learned a funny lesson. Uh, you should listen to Stan. Uh, those, those charts, I mean, it, what you have to understand, as clear as this data is, the data on housing was that clear, and no one did anything about it. Now, I'm, I'm just determined that for my kids, right, our kids, that we've invested all of this time and energy, that we're not going to allow them to end up getting ripped off because my generation, I'm, in, I'm part of the baby boomer generation, my generation, quite honestly, doesn't care what's left 30 years from now or 40 years from now, uh, and I think that's a disaster. So all of this has come together for me. Uh, these are kids that we wanted to break into generational poverty. We have done that, but we know what will happen to these kids uh, if my generation takes all of uh, sort of the money. And by the way, 
when, when Stan didn't show you uh, some of the charts that talks about discretionary spending and how, I guess you did, how that has shrank. But when you look at something like what's happened in Flint, and you begin to say, how in an American city could we not only have children being poisoned in front of our eyes, but nobody doing anything about it, and people acting like in America we can't find the resources to fix this kind of stuff. And by the way, Flint is not even the worst place in Michigan for lead poisoning. There are 22 other communities I heard that's even worse. Now, how could that be? But this is going on all over the country because when you come to the policymakers, they simply say we don't have the resources to do this stuff. A lot of it has to do with the state pensions you were talking about and what's happening to state budgets and city budgets. But this is also this other entitlement issue. And I think that as a nation, it's disgraceful for us not to do the kind of investments in our kids that give them the same opportunities uh, that Stan and I had growing up. So that's how I got sort of uh, tied up into this issue. So let's just talk for a moment and outline some of the ways in which we might be underinvesting right now. And I'd like to just tick them off. So, so let's just, between the, the two of you, so what kinds of areas are we talking about? So clearly we had a poverty problem, but then, so where else are we underinvesting? Uh, I, I think it, when you start thinking about medical supports for young people, when you start thinking about educational supports for young people and what's happening with school budgets across the country, uh, and while I am the first one to argue that money is not the answer to failing schools, I will also say, oh, it does take money to educate not that those of you from Berkeley would worry about money and education, but it does take money to actually educate kids, and we have just not prepared to do it. Uh, when you think about uh, food scarcity, uh, when you think about uh, kids growing up to expose to environmental toxins, the asthma it causes, the other kinds of diseases, uh, I think that uh, health, uh, social services, by the way, the, 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 one of the things that we're becoming very clear about is young people growing up in poverty uh, have lots of uh, uh, symptoms of mental health problems that simply aren't being treated uh, at all. Uh, and when you think about it, it used to always frustrate me, what happens when there's a shooting in an upper middle class community, uh, one of those horrible shootings. And the first thing everybody talks about is how all of the mental health services are going to be there for all of the kids and the families. These shootings are every day in places in this country, and we do absolutely nothing. No one sends any mental health into any of those kids. And if, you, if you're growing up underneath that kind of stress, right, uh, which we know when we send soldiers overseas, uh, and they're exposed to a year or two years of violence, that post-traumatic stress, what happens for decades afterwards, you have kids growing up with this, and they, and they don't, you know, at least as a soldier, you get to come back home. They, they can't come, it is home. What is that doing? Why aren't we providing any mental health services to our young people? Uh, so I think employment uh, is an area, youth employment's an area that we underinvest. And one of the things that disturbs me the most is Stan and I, we were talking to some folks who, who were visiting, uh, you know, we get a lot of kids to stick with our program for years because we have great arts, sports, uh, and uh, other kinds of uh, what I would call high engagement activities for our young people. Uh, chess and tennis and, I mean, you name it, and we're providing that to, to kids. Uh, when you are poor, 
Uh, that is seen as a luxury. And in most places, a luxury we can't afford. Uh, when you're not poor, you consider that essential for your own kid to have these sort of things. Uh, and it's another area I think that we have massive underinvestment. So, Stan, just to add, do you have other things you'd add to as well? well I just amplify uh, Jeff's health comment. I'll never forget, as the sequester was unfolding, both sides of the aisle, we're not going to balance the budget on the back of our seniors. So then they cut infrastructure spending. Okay, that's all Flint, Michigan is. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about an infrastructure problem, bridges, roads. I've been on the board of Memorial Sloan Kettering for 25 years. We didn't even know really what caused cancer until about six years ago and how it happened. Massive breakthroughs. We can genetically sequence, target drugs. So now what's going on? We're having our NIH grants cut at Sloan Kettering to do cancer research. Um, so much crowding out. I mean, Jeff mentioned just, you know, the other main problems, but I mean, Hillary this morning talked about Medicaid for children and the effect on toxic stress and other things on, on kids. I mean, you saw it. They're getting eight cents, the children, and the elderly are getting 56 cents. Can we just make it like 54 or 12 or something? You know, just give them a little bit of the pie? Because frankly, you know, to invest in a five or six or a three-year-old, to me, the payoff's a lot bigger than to invest in an 85-year-old. Now, I may feel differently in 23 years, <laughs> but... <laughs> So those are, those are the main issues I would, I would highlight. The only other thing I, I would say, uh, which I think is germane uh, here also, um, is the sort of underinvestment that we've done in higher education for young people. I've actually uh, had folks, Stan and I were having this conversation, say a college education doesn't pay, right, when you have to borrow huge amounts of money and there's no guarantee that you're going to earn enough money to actually pay back the bills. And so some folks are thinking, well, maybe these kids shouldn't get a college education. Uh, my theory is maybe the, it shouldn't be so expensive for a poor kid to go to school that we have to think maybe they shouldn't go to school. That that's, that's a challenge. And, and again, I think this is something that, uh, you know, we should put uh, at the top of the priority list my generation, there were schools you could go to that you could afford when you were poor, when I was in college, right? This was one of those places. City College was free. In New York City, not one dime did you have to pay uh, to go to City because there was this idea that education was the great equalizer and you shouldn't have wealth determine whether or not you had a shot at education. I think that's a real challenge right now and there are a lot of kids who are thinking I can't afford college or I can't afford the, the loans to get through college and, and I think uh, that's not the kind of country uh, that uh, Stan and I believe that uh, you know you should have uh, especially we shouldn't be leaving that to our children and our grandchildren. So we got a really good question here which I think will help clarify some things. Why can't we expand the economic pie instead of trying to carve out up or out the one we have in place? So how does what you're proposing, you. is that just saying <laughs> we should just reallocate money from old people to young people, or is there something else going on here that might answer this question? Well, 
I don't know who asked it, but if you cut investments and put all the money into expenditures, into, into consumption, the economic pie will shrink over the long term and over the intermediate term. So the first thing we can do is start investing in our kids and investing in productive things and not paying people like me in two and a half years, who's a billionaire, um, social security checks. It's ridiculous. So, uh, I don't want to get into uh, my ideas on expanding the economy because probably sound partisan, everybody has, has different views, but there is no question, and I think both sides of the aisle would agree, if you keep spending money on transfer payments and, and consumption, and you cut education, and you cut, you cut investing in, in your infrastructure, your economic growth will unequivocally be slower. So, in fact, what you're proposing is actually let's invest because then everybody will be yeah, better yeah, off. This is not just about fairness and equity, and it surely is about fairness and equity, but it's not just about that. It's about growing our economy for the long term and making it more productive. And let's get back to the Harlem Children's Zone. Tell us about what you see with individuals there who you invest in and what the results are. Where do they start from? Where do they end up, given what you do? Yeah, well, I, I think they, so for... Uh, the folks who care about the research, probably Roland Fryer's uh, research on us is probably the most definitive uh, just in terms of uh, some of the uh, real hard outcomes. Uh, but this is, look, when, when, when Stan and I began this uh, initiative, if, if you were in my office uh, and I was trying to raise money from you all, which I told the dean I wouldn't do, uh, you all should give to, to Berkeley. But if you would so happened to stumble into Harlem and ended up in my office, I would show you a chart of the incarceration rates in my zone. I would show you Manhattan, and I would show you what's happening in my 100 blocks. Uh, and you, and, and if you're, uh, the way they, they calculate it, after a certain number, it becomes red. And so the Harlem Children's Zone looks like one red uh, sort of area. Uh, that's been going on uh, all over America. Uh, these kinds of communities, we're spending huge amounts of money, uh, not just on incarceration, which uh, in New York State is $60,000 a year, but here's a number that you need to keep in mind. In New York City, so if you go to New York City jail, there are two estimates. Uh, the low estimate is 115000 and probably the more realistic estimate is $160,000 a year. There are 12,000 people in New York City jails. We work with 13,000 kids. Uh, when I think about what we have been doing in these communities, it's basically been just like a black hole for tax dollars. Uh, no, unemployment is sky high. Folks aren't working. Folks aren't contributing. And we're paying not just for incarceration, for special education, for emergency room admits. I mean, it goes on and on and on. Uh, right now, our... Uh, college graduation rates are not just higher than blacks in this country and Latinos in this country, it's higher than whites in this country right now. Uh, and the idea is that this is where you need to, this is where you need to go. If you really want to fight intergenerational poverty, you got to get the kids out there and give them a shot. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, it's not only the education achievement, but Roland's latest data talks about incarceration 
uh, which is like almost zero, uh, and uh, teen pregnancy, which is one of probably the best teen pregnancy prevention programs in the nation when you look at uh, the uh, sort of different uh, between kids in the zone and kids outside. Uh, so on each one of these indicators, I think this is really just trying to uh, take our kids who were at the bottom for the last 50 years and get those kids back into the middle so they have some opportunity uh, to become middle-class uh, citizens. So what else can we do? What can we do to make sure the communities are investing in the future in this way? And that leads to the larger question, too, of how did we get to a situation where so much spending goes towards the elderly, and why isn't there more for young people? What are the political issues here uh, that need to be overcome? I think it it started with very, very good intentions. Um, You know, I showed the chart in the mid-60s when Medicaid and Medicare came on, we spent nothing. And those are great programs. Um, Social Security is a great program. But if you want to get into the raw politics of it, um, there's an organization called the AARP, which represents the elderly. I started getting notices when I was 50. Uh, No, literally, every month you did too, right? I can't wait till I'm 65 to collect. No, just kidding. But... (laughs) Um, it's an unbelievably strong lobby. It's well-heeled. And to be frank, the elderly vote. And first of all, children can't vote. But more importantly, the young don't vote. And for whatever reason, uh, Dean Brady, the young have not focused on this issue, but the elderly are focused on it because it's directly affecting their pocketbook. And the young are having trouble focusing on something 20 or 30 years out. So I think that's the raw politics of it. And, you know, the politicians cater to it. The thing thing that I would add is that uh, when you uh, begin to talk to people about it, there there is a belief that uh, these investments that were made simply didn't produce any results. Right. And folks believe we had a war on poverty and we lost. And we spent all of this money and nothing happened. And I think one of the things, and Dean, I know a lot of the researchers are coming out of the Goldman School. One of the things that folks are really demonstrating is that uh, you do get a return. Uh, it's, sometimes it's not as uh, sort of uh, quick as you would think. Sometimes it takes longer to sort of see what those investments really turn out. But when, when I go on Capitol Hill, which if you really want to see your government work Go to Capitol Hill and try and argue on the merits of science. Uh, you'll be extremely disappointed. Now, they, they think differently of Stan if he comes with me because they're thinking maybe the guy's going to give me some money. Me, I'm just, I'm just coming at him with problems, right? Uh, and, and I'm not kidding about that. Uh, but but the, 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 the challenge is that when you talk to people, they, they honestly don't believe in many cases that these problems have solutions. Uh, they just haven't seen the evidence, the empirical evidence that says this is not sort of some liberal do-gooder, but this is actually a sound investment. And I think to the degree that we continue to have our social scientists uh, sort of pile on the evidence uh, that has to be done uh, in a sophisticated enough way that it meets this skeptical audience, uh, it gives some of us ammunition to begin to push back and say there are investments you can make that actually do pay off and you get a real return on the investment. 
just say another example of those kinds of investments and why they really, really I think, matter. I think the evidence on early childhood has really been clear. Uh, I think that's increasingly uh, we're finding that uh, any of the uh, sort of uh, op- uh, uh, strategies that reduced poverty uh, in uh, families really has paid off, although folks didn't believe that it did. Uh, I think now that there's a lot of research saying that the uh, ability of families to get key services, health, mental health, uh, and uh, employment training, I think it really does pay off that that evidence is becoming very clear. Uh, and there's increasing evidence that working in a place, right? Uh, you know, when we, when we decided to work in our 100 blocks, uh, there was not a lot of evidence that this idea that if you improved the physical and, and uh, other opportunities in that area, it would broadly, uh, I think, allow children to do better. I think that evidence is becoming clearer and clearer that place matters, and we shouldn't have places where there's a sense of despair and that there's no hope that this place is going to get any better. Uh, I think that that's also becoming clear uh, that this place-based strategy, there's evidence that this now works. Nutrition affects brain development right from the get-go. That's been proven now. And toxic toxic stress affects brain development right from the get-go. That's been proven. And you can absolutely invest in those areas to reduce those. Say a little more about the sense of despair, because I, I think many people don't understand what it's like to be in some of these communities. Well, I, I think the, uh, at, at the very beginning, and it's, if you came to Harlem today, you would have not a clue what I was talking about. And so we have pictures that we have to show people of what the community actually looked like. Uh, it was a disaster. It looked like some bombed out place after a war had happened. Uh, and, and people have this belief that children growing up there, you get used to it. No, you don't. You don't get used to that. I mean, if, if I asked any kid, would you rather be here or would you rather be in this nice place? All the kids would say, I'd rather be over there in that nice place. It's not like kids don't know they're growing up in a place where kids don't make it out of those places. Uh, so uh, I was actually speaking to a young man, I don't know, Samuel, I don't know if he's still here, uh, but he was talking about growing up in an environment and, and how it was just normal for kids to go out and get involved uh, in hustling. And hustling looks different, but it's all the same stuff. Doing something illegal to make enough money, not that you ever get rich or you can retire, but enough money that you can take care of necessities today and maybe tomorrow. Uh, when that becomes the culture in a place, that that's what the expectation is. It goes with a lowered belief that you're going to live, right? So kids who are 14 and 15 and believe they're probably not going to see 20, they do a lot more risky kinds of things than kids who think they have a future. Uh, it's much easier for girls to not care if I get pregnant or if I don't. If they don't believe they have a future and there's nothing sort of waiting and sort of saying to them you're getting out of this place. Uh, and despair is infectious, uh, meaning you catch it. Uh, I got it, and you come in, and after a while, guess what? I keep telling you why. Nope, not in this place. And these places have names that people uh, give them that suggest this is one of those places you don't get out of, and Harlem certainly was one of those places. But this is what we learned. Uh, hope is also infectious, 
right? When, when people begin to see that thing, well, first of all, when we said we were going to change the conditions, everybody, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know how many different entities had come into Harlem saying we're going to change this thing until everybody's eyes roll, yeah, you're going to change it, yeah. When people actually began to see the physical change and began to understand that this thing was really happening, you could, at first we had to convince people to work with us, then people began to come to us and say, hey, can you come on my block and help us with this? That sense of growing up uh, and having a belief. I'll, I'll give you one last example. Harlem was the kind of place that if a kid ended up at a place like this, they might get on the front page of Time magazine, right? It'd be this big story, kids makes it out of the hood. And, and so if you ask somebody back when we started, do you know anyone going to college? They would probably say, oh, I think there's this girl on 117th Street. I think she's in college. And they say, well, could you? I say, no, you'd have to be a genius to go to college. Stan and I have over 940 kids in college right now. When they come home, which they all are coming home for spring break, you know what it looks like to be eight in a place that you've got 900 kids from your community in college? If you ask them and you believe you go to college, they'd be like, he's in college. So, you know, it, it's, what changes, it's what changes what the norm is. If the norm is no one goes, then you say, I'm normal. Why would I think I could go? If the norm is that one is in college, I know I could go to college if he's in college, right? That, and, and that's real. When that becomes the norm, young people just have a different sense of what it means to be hopeful because even if you're trapped right now, right, even if you're in a house, your, your mom's is struggling, she has mental health issues, maybe they're drug addict, maybe your brother's in jail, you see a path out of this that doesn't involve you risking your life uh, or risking imprisonment because you see examples of it each day. There's hope right here and she's got hope. And that, that kind of sense of opportunity, I think, is what had made America great. And in these places, we've got to bring that sense back to these communities. So let's just talk about a few things that some people have mentioned here. Some presidential candidates are telling us that the issue here is immigration and that if we just stopped immigration, we'd solve the problem. How do you think about immigration? Is, is immigration a problem for America or could it be a solution for America? How do we think about it? Well, I think all of us are the product of immigration. It might have been this generation or one that, you know, this country's built on immigration. With regard to this specific issue, immigration is, is a huge help because you, you, you bring in more of the population, you get more economic growth, and you get more suckers to pay for the older people now. This is the way, this, this is the, way the system works, is when you pay a payroll tax if you're working, it's not going into you. This is not a pay-as-you-go system. You're paying for somebody who worked 40 years ago. So it's a minor point, but immigration with regard to this specific issue uh, is a help, not a hurt. But immigration in general, this country was built on immigration. I don't really understand. There's not a candidate out there who somebody in their family at some point didn't immigrate. That's why they're here. It's just ridiculous. I, so, so you see this differently in, like, New York City, right? Where you just see the sort of uh, the, the energy, the economic energy that all of these uh, immigrants bring into the city. And I don't think anyone thinks, oh, that's a bad thing that we see going on as folks try and figure out sort of what their niche is to climb uh, the American dream. 
Uh, I think when you look at countries that have failed totally to bring new people into their communities, you have a problem. You think about Japan and what's happening as that group grows older and they're not able to sustain the population. You've got a problem. I mean, this thing really has consequences. Uh, and I think, you know, that right now uh, immigrants are a scapegoat uh, for the fact that we've had, uh, you know, uh, a, a problem growing and sustaining our middle class uh, in America. That is not an immigration problem. Uh, it's a real problem. Uh, and I think an, an easy way is to find a scapegoat and say they're the reason uh, that this is happening. Uh, as if, if we stopped all of them, right, from coming in, uh, suddenly we would have all of these jobs appearing back. Uh, I, I just think that this has been one of the uh, more um, horrid kinds of conversations that we've had in this country uh, in quite a while. Uh, and it reminds me of a time when, you know, it was okay to villainize others, African-Americans, anyone who grew up in the 60s, uh, know what was being said and how open people were disparaging of, uh, you know, uh, that group. Uh, this sounds a, a lot like that to me. Uh, and I think it's, it's a real a problem that we, we haven't addressed fully. So stopping immigration is not the solution. Here's another solution. Just lift the cap on capital gains, increase taxes on capital gains, and we'll have enough money to solve the problem. True or false? Well, I happen to think they should normalize uh, capital gains and dividends, but, and it'll bring some money, so I think it'll be helpful, but it's just a pittance in terms of solving the problem. The funny thing about capital gains, again, tying it to this issue, is the average 60-year-old has five times the net worth of the average 30-year-old. So taxing old people and rich people at a lower rate than the 30-year-old plumber is a direct transfer of wealth, again, from the young to the old. I don't think that's why it was intended, but... You know, I've, I've invested in businesses all my, you know, for the better part of 40 years. I started a business, and this idea that um, somebody's sitting around collecting dividends and, collect, and clipping coupons is some kind of great job creator relative to some guy out there working, I think is a joke. But So you're talking to somebody who thinks they should raise or normalize capital gains and, and dividends, not give them preferential achievement, but it won't solve the problem. It'll give you some money, but it will not solve the problem. So it's important to understand, and that's one of the complexities here, is the magnitudes of the amounts of money we're talking about here. They are no, really, no, really talk low. Talk about the defense budget. Okay, so the defense budget is $700 billion. It's a lot of money, and I don't even think that's like equal to like three years of the growth in entitlements coming up. Like, if you took defense spending to zero, okay, you wouldn't make up for three years of the upcoming growth in entitlements. So again, should, should we have a defense budget greater than the 18 countries in the world combined, that's what they equal to just us? Probably not. And probably you could find a way to cut a little bit of the defense budget. But I will say they've already cut it. Those charts I showed up there, Defense used to be 6% of GDP. It's going to be like a half a percent of GDP. Going, it, it's, it's come down a lot. Again, you can cut a little defense spending, but these are just 
tiny little snippets compared to the big problem. If you want to get at the big problem, you know, you're going to have to means test Social Security. You're going to have to means test Medicare. And yes, um, since they've already gotten so much of the pie, I don't have a problem with stopping the colas. It's not like they haven't already increase their share dramatically, and five- and seven-year-olds are suffering because of expenditures we could be doing with that money on, on their future. So how do you start, I've got questions here from, I think, probably students. How do we start a movement here? We don't want to make this... That's a, why I'm here. We don't, okay. That's their job. <laughs> so, but what, what, what's the levers here? What should we focus on? How can we get young people to understand this? And how can we also avoid a war of all against all? We don't want to end up with a war of young people versus seniors. That's not the goal. That's absolutely not the goal. Well, the first thing you do is start voting. and Start voting, young people. And and I would make this this issue a priority. Um, You know, I talk to young people. I have daughters in the early 20s. I was thrilled when gay marriage went through for, for a couple of reasons. A, I thought it was great. B, I thought maybe they could be, move on to another issue now that that problem was solved. So I got a twofer when that happened. But, I mean, if you, if you look at the charts I put up there and you're willing to think about your future, this is a big deal. And one thing I know about young people in this country, when they show in force and they vote in on an issue and they're loud about it, like they were on gay rights and like they have been on climate, the politicians eventually listen, but they got to vote or the politicians won't give a damn. The voting rates among young people are about half of the voting rates of those 65 and older. So young people are simply not voting. And so politicians are not stupid. They know who votes and they're going to focus on the concerns and needs of those who vote. It's that simple. I just want to end by saying these are two remarkable people and I just feel honored that they came across country to be with us, to tell us what they're thinking about. And I think what's really quite remarkable is that they come from quite different places, do quite different things in their lives, and yet have come together with a concern for this issue. And I think that's wonderful. And I think it's indicative of the kind of creativity that exists in America to try to solve problems. And I think the Harlan Children's Zone is solving problems. And I hope that we can work here at Berkeley and around the country to solve the issues we've discussed today with respect to the future investment in young people to make sure that we create a future for them that's worthy for them in America. So thank you for coming. Thank you so much, Jeffrey Canada, Stan Druckenmiller. <laughs>